We don't normally think of words like accountability and discipline in a positive light, but in scripture, God gives us these things for our good. God's people are called to care for one another in the church, both in terms of teaching and encouraging one another, and if necessary, calling one another to repent of sin. Welcome to the Radical with David Platt podcast, the latest sermons from teacher, author, and pastor David Platt delivered weekly. As always, you can find thousands of more free resources over at Radical.net. In today's sermon, David Platt will help us see why churches that seek to glorify God and be faithful to the Great Commission should be marked by a concern for the spiritual welfare of every member. Here's David with a sermon titled, 12 Traits of a Biblical Church, Accountability and Discipline, from Galatians chapter 6. If you have a Bible, and I hope you or somebody around you does that you can look on with, let me invite you to open with me to Galatians chapter 6. Feel free to use table of contents if you need to, Galatians chapter 6. And while you're turning there, I want to welcome those of you who are gathering with us in Loudoun, Prince William, Montgomery County, down at the wharf on Main and different microsites, assisting living centers. It's good to gather together across D.C. around God's Word. We are in the latter half of the series on 12 biblical traits of a church. Today we're on trait 9, account- biblical accountability and discipline. What I mentioned last week would be a particularly sensitive and politically incorrect topic And when I say that, I mean that pretty much everything we're about to see in God's word goes against the grain of the way we're wired in this world. Let's just jump right in. We live in a world where it's offensive to say that a particular belief is wrong, and it's even more offensive to tell someone that what they're doing is wrong. After all, who do you think you are? Christians and non-Christians alike will quote Jesus. Didn't he say, don't judge lest you be judged? Who are you to point out something wrong in my life when you have so many things wrong in your life? And mind your own business. We've actually convinced ourselves in the church that it's loving, kind, even compassionate to sit back and say, someone else's sin is their life their business, their responsibility. What someone else does is between them and the Lord. And that may sound spiritual on the surface and good to the world. What I want to show you today is that that is anything but loving according to God's word. I think about this personally. I'm just just processing this in a fresh way in my own life, preparing for this time today like, If I, in my life, am wandering off into sin that will destroy my life, my marriage, my family, even ministry, like the last thing I want is men and women around me using super spiritual jargon to say, well, that's his business. Like, who am I to judge? What David is doing is between him and the Lord. No, I want somebody who loves me enough to call me back to Christ. Like away from sin toward that which is good for me. It hit me this morning like 
I would not be here right now if I didn't have people in my life who have done this for me. And there's no chance I'd be here right now. If I didn't have people who loved me enough to do this in my life, it is it's not loving for a friend to leave me alone in my temptations and tendencies to wander into sin. So last week we talked about biblical fellowship and community as a trait of a church. We looked at all kinds of ways that we're supposed to love and care for one another in the church. Today we're going to see that one of the greatest ways we can love and care for one another is by holding one another accountable in God's grace to obedience to God's word. We're going to see that growing as a disciple of Jesus necessarily involves discipline in our lives. Now that's not a word we often think of as loving, like discipline, but we should. Like I think about my life as a parent on the rare occasions when one of my kids does something wrong. It is not loving for me to sit back and say, well, that's your business. I do not say that's your business. Like It is loving for me to gently say to them, this is not good when you do this. And this is at the foundation of our relationship with God. Hebrews 12, 6 makes clear that God disciplines those whom he loves. Be glad that God has not left you alone in your sin. Be glad that God doesn't say, well, that's your problem. This is the heart of the gospel. In our sin, God comes running after us and he says, this is not good and I've made a way for you to be forgiven of it, free from it, to turn from it. Like that is love. So then how do we express God's love to one another in the church? By lazily consigning one another to sin? That's your business. Or by lovingly confronting one another in sin as if it's our business. So here's the key sentence I want to show you in God's word today. You might write it down. Loving one another in the church involves humbly sharing responsibility for one another's holiness in our lives. Say that again. It's a loaded sentence. We're going to unpack it. Loving one another in the church involves humbly sharing responsibility for one another's holiness in our lives. In other words, being a part of the church means helping one another grow in Christ. This is the word of God. In Galatians chapter 6, verse 1, listen to God speaking here through Paul, this letter to the church at Galatia. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Just let every word soak in there. Like brothers, he speaks to them like they're family. Because like we saw last week, we are in the church. We belong to one another as family. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. If any one of us is caught in transgression, and the implication in this word caught is that a brother or sister is continuing in sin, not turning from sin, not repenting of sin. 
than you who are spiritual. The language there goes back to the chapter before this, Galatians 5, where Galatians talks about walking in the Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. So those who are walking in the Spirit with that fruit in their lives should restore him, should work to help him or her turn back to Christ in a spirit of gentleness. So not in a spirit of pride. Verse 3 Here in Galatians 3, he speaks directly against that. If anyone thinks he's something when he's nothing, he deceives himself. And not in a spirit of self-righteousness. Right after this in the last part of verse 1, keep watch on yourself lest you be tempted. So in a spirit of humility and gentleness, restore your brother and sister in Christ. It is your responsibility to help them grow in holiness. This is a trait of a church. Accountability and discipline, a true church, a people who truly love one another in the church, humbly, gently, lovingly share responsibility for one another's holiness in their lives. Now, when you hear this word discipline, I want to encourage you to think about it on two levels, so a formative level and a restorative level. And this is really key. So you might write this down. So formative church discipline involves continual encouragement to repent of sin and walk with God, which should be an ongoing reality in every one of our lives and our relationships in the church. You think about it, there's a sense in which every week when we gather together, we open God's word, it's preached and taught here, we are experiencing formative church discipline. Like the word is encouraging us every week in specific ways we can turn from sin and walk with God. So we receive this kind of discipline in a sense every time we open the Bible. Whether that's in a gathering like this, whether that's in our home, in a workplace, in a small group. So this is disciple making, teaching one another to obey everything Christ has commanded us. So every week, all the time, we're encouraging each other to Turn from sin. Walk with God. We're being formed more and more and more into the image of Christ. Being formed. Formative church discipline. And in this sense, our entire Christian lives involve this kind of discipline. And then there are times when we need more specific restorative church discipline. So this would be the second kind here, which involves corrective care when we are unrepentant in sin, away from God. And that's the picture here in Galatians 6.1. When a brother or sister is caught in sin in such a way that they're continuing in it and not repenting of it, that's, that's key. So this whole conversation, restorative church discipline, deals with unrepentant sin. So not just when somebody is battling with sin, that's all of us in our lives all the time. But when someone is walking in direct disobedience to God and won't repent, when that's the case, It's the responsibility of the church to love that brother or sister enough to go to them and say, turn from this sin back to God. And this isn't just one of many things the church should do. This is actually one of the most important things the church must do. Turn me back to Matthew chapter 18. I want want you to hear Jesus' words on this. I want you to see this in the Bible, straight from the mouth of Jesus. Like, this is not me and some pastors getting around one day thinking, what would be a cool topic to talk about one Sunday? Like, how about accountability and church discipline? Like, oh, it'll make everybody pretty, like, just chills kind of going down their back. Everybody will be really excited. Like, no, that this is, 
We're talking about this because God has said this is important. Listen to Matthew chapter 18. So if you remember in the beginning of the series, uh, and we looked at Matthew 16 one week. We were talking about biblical evangelism. That's the first time we ever see the word church mentioned in the Bible, Matthew chapter 16. And Jesus uses that word church when he's talking about people who profess Jesus, him, as Lord. And we talked about how the church is the community of people who identify Jesus as Lord. That's foundational teaching on the church. Then there's one other time that Jesus specifically mentions the word church. Two chapters later in Matthew chapter 18. It's the only other mention of the church specifically in Jesus' mouth. And it's when he's given a particular instruction to the church. Listen to what he says. Matthew chapter 18, verse 15. Jesus Speaking here, he says, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. So there's where he mentions the church. If he refuses to listen even to the church, you might circle both those times there in your Bible, highlight them. There are two mentions of the church after Matthew 16. If he refuses to listen even to the church, let him beat you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on anything on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For wherever two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. Ha, did you hear that? This whole passage is about restorative church discipline, offering corrective care when someone is unrepentant and sent away from God. Don't miss this. Biblical accountability and discipline, this is not like number 100 on a list of 101 things Jesus says the church should do. This is at the top of the list. Right after the importance of confessing Jesus as Lord, we see him instructing the church on discipline and accountability, which means, so follow this, if this trait of a church is not a central part of McLean Bible Church, then we are not being the church Jesus has called us to be. And we will not experience life as God has called and created us to experience it. We are all prone to sin. Every single one of us in this room, including myself, we all need continual encouragement to repent of sin and walk with God, and we all need corrective care when we're unrepentant in sin to call us back to God. This is something we all need. Years ago, I got an email from a man in the church I was pastoring at that time, and he said, Dear Pastor, two weeks ago on a Sunday morning, My wife came to you after church with a dire request for prayer. It was indeed dire, for I was on the verge of making a huge mistake that would have haunted me for the rest of my life. I was in the process of leaving my family in search of who knows what, something better, something straight out of Satan's playbook. I was on the edge of a cliff with one foot over. My wife and everyone she knew were calling me back to Christ and praying that I would come back. And because of their prayers and their work, the Lord did not leave me to do what I thought I wanted to do, but rather he poured out grace on me and my family, and we are once again whole. I wanted to say thank you. Those prayers and their work shielded me from justice until I was shaken to my senses and could ask for mercy. Amen. We've got to realize in this room, there is not one of us, myself included, there's not one of us in this room and other campuses right now who is beyond getting to that point. 
And if you think you are, you are fooling yourself. And it, we've got to see how this is important. Sin is so deceptive in our lives, and we need, I, I need people in my life who are close enough to my life to see when I'm stepping over the cliff, or even slightly moving toward the cliff. I need, and I, by God's grace, have people in my life who know my besetting sins, the sins I am most prone to struggle with. I need, I have people in my life who are a regular source of accountability and discipline in my life, and I want to encourage every single follower of Christ in this church to have that. You need that. If you do not have that, you are in a dangerous place, spiritually. I said, Pastor, I don't want you to be there. So now and in the days to come, I, we want to help every follower of Christ in this church to have this. Just having a conversation with a brother weeping in the lobby after the first gathering because a family member of his, as part of this church, doesn't have that and has gone off the cliff. This is important. And it goes back to what we were talking about last week. This can't happen when church is just about coming to a gathering, sitting anonymously in a service, and then walking away disconnected from community. That is simply not how God has designed the church to be. Jesus has called every one of us to be in relationships in the church where Matthew 18 can happen. So follow the steps here. This is, this is how Jesus has designed restorative church discipline to work. So you might write these down. Just four steps in restorative church discipline. Step one is private correction. Verse 15, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. Now, you notice in this verse it says if your brother sins against you, and some Bibles have a small note that takes you to the bottom of the page where it says, some manuscripts do not have the words against you. So this is one of the few places in Scripture where there's a bit of discrepancy in some of the earliest manuscripts we have of the New Testament. They're called variants. Uh, so this is kind of a side note here, but you'll sometimes hear people say, well, we really don't, don't even know how much of our Bible accurately represents the most original manuscripts. There's discrepancies even there. But whenever you hear somebody say that, take heart. Like 99% of these variants have a missing letter here or there, a slight change in word order. They're virtually insignificant. And then even for the other 1%, ones like this, none of them affect major doctrinal tenets or understandings of Christianity. They're minuscule. And this is one of those situations. Some manuscripts, the earliest manuscripts have against you. Some manuscripts don't. In the end, though, even here, it's really not that significant because regardless of what Jesus said here, if a brother sins or if a brother sins against you, the reality is Galatians 6.1 made it clear. If anyone is caught in any transgression, you should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. And the way Jesus says to do that at first is to go to that brother or sister in Christ just between the two of you and talk about this humbly. Yes, Jesus absolutely warns in Matthew chapter 7 against going to a brother or sister to talk about a speck in his or her eye when there's a plank in your own eye. So examine your own heart before going to someone else. Galatians 6 says to keep watch over your own life, temptations you face. So humbly Gently, biblically, so we only do this when there's actual like, biblical sin in someone's life. Not, it's not just when somebody's doing something that you don't like. 
when there's sin in someone's life, and we do this quietly, meaning we, we don't talk to everybody else before going to that person. We go to that person in private. And we say, out of love for you, I'm concerned about you and sin I see in you. And again, we need to be in relationships with one another where this is happening all the time. I think about my marriage. Heather and I see each other at our best and our worst, and we want to help one another grow in Christ. I think about other men in my life who see me, particular guys who see me at my best and my worst, and I want them to help me grow in Christ, particularly when I don't, when I don't see things that they see. And I want to do the same thing in their lives, out of love for them, see love at the root of all of this. When a brother or sister has sinned against you or is caught in sin, is not turning from sin in some way, then love him or her enough not to sit back and watch them wander deeper into sin. How is that loving? And not to talk with everybody else in the world about it, but to love him or her enough to go to them in private correction. And the goal, Jesus says, is to win them over. Go in a spirit of love and humility and grace such that when this person sees their sin, hopefully they'll say, thank you for helping me in this way. Yes, I need to turn from this. And by the grace of God, they will. And your communion together in Christ will be so much deeper as a result. This is such a good thing. And just another note, one of the reasons why this is private in the beginning is because you may not have all the information. You may have misread a situation. You may have wrong information. And the last thing we want to do is talk with others about someone without first going to that person. This is so huge. Have you ever had somebody come to you and say, hey, I heard you said this or did that. You shouldn't have said or done that. And the reality is, you didn't do that. The problem, though, is when that person has already talked with 10 other people about that and all these other people think you've said or done this or that. Jesus says, no, like, go to your brother or sister. Between the two of you, this is where 95% of restorative church discipline happens in the context of daily, ongoing relationships. Now, there are some situations when the person you go to doesn't listen or doesn't receive loving, gentle, biblical correction, won't turn from sin. And if that's the case, then step two, Jesus says, is small group clarification. So here in Matthew 18, Jesus quotes from the way things were handled in the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 19, 15, where other witnesses are involved in the truth of something. And so the picture is to involve another believer, maybe two. Again, the circle stays really small here. People who are also gentle, humble, loving will go with you to that brother or sister to talk about what seems like unrepentant sin. Now, the point here is to broaden the circle just slightly so these one or two other brothers and sisters are now showing the same love and concern for that person who's caught in sin. The goal is not to gang up on that person. You don't go and try to find a couple people who can build a case against that person. The goal is to find one or two other people who ideally know this brother or sister, who are gentle, humble, loving, will go with you to talk about this with them. Those one or two others may end up saying to you, like, this is not even sin. You don't need to be addressing this in this person's life. Or they may say, yeah, this is sin. And they join you in saying, we are concerned about you. We want to call you back to Christ. So Jesus says, involve one or two others in this process. Again, this is not necessarily a church leader or pastor. Could be. But it's best to involve someone in the church who knows that brother or sister and cares for them. And again, that 
takes care of even more situations. We're probably up to 99% of restorative church discipline situations now. And let me just encourage you, as I would want you to encourage me, when a, a small group of brothers and sisters in Christ comes to you in love and says, we see sin in your life in this way, like disobedience to God that we're concerned about for you, I want to encourage you to listen to that. I need to listen to that. But then Jesus says, if, if a brother or sister refuses to listen, even then, then tell it to the church. So step three is church admonition. The word Jesus uses here in Matthew 18 is ecclesia, the gathering of believers, the church. And this is where the circle expands to the gathering of believers in a local church, which brings up all kinds of questions. What does that look like? And this is where I'm still learning how this has been done at McLean, and I want to work with our elders and pastors in the days to come to make sure we're doing this well. Certainly a first step in this would be to go to an elder or pastor in the church after steps one and two have been taken and to say, here's somebody that we're concerned about, and we as elders and pastors want to work with how to best help that brother or sister. But this is where I'm guessing some people are thinking, wait a minute, like this is too far. Some of you thought that like 15 minutes ago, but now you're really thinking, like, tell it to the church? Like, the church? Does that seem like a, a bit much? Like, are you serious? Should we do that? But here's the deal. We don't really have an option here. And we're, this is Jesus talking. We don't want to pick and choose on what like, seems comfortable to us. That's not an option. For, we're, we're followers of Christ. If we don't follow what Christ says, then we're walking in disobedience to God. So Jesus, Jesus has told us to do this. And he's told us to do this for a reason. So remember, the goal at every step of restorative church discipline is to do just that, to restore a brother or sister back to Christ. So I've thought before, do we have to do this? Like, tell it to the church? Like, why the church? Like, the gathering of believers about this person and their sin? But don't miss the picture here. Why? Because you've got an entire body of believers now saying to someone, we love you. We want you to come back to Christ. So follow this. Brothers and sisters in Christ, this room and other campuses right now, hear this. God loves you so much that if you are unrepentant in sin, running after that which will destroy your life, your family, people around you, God loves you so much that he will send his entire body, his entire bride to you in demonstration of his love for you to draw you back to him. He loves you so much. We've got to see God's love at the heart of this. Now Jesus says if someone, even the whole church, is calling them back to Christ, refusing to turn from sin, if someone refuses to listen even to the church, then step four is church exclusion. In Jesus' words, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. And basically the imagery there is to treat this person like they are no longer your brother or sister in Christ. He or she is excluded from the church. 
because as, as we saw in the Sermon on Church Membership, the Bible really doesn't know anything of a Christian who's not identified as a part or a member of a local church. So to be excluded from the church is to be seen as not a part, not a member of the body of Christ. This is a command from Jesus. If we don't do this, we are disobeying Jesus as the church. Now, let's be honest. This is, this is tough, like really tough. This whole process is tough to do, which is why Jesus says what he does in verses 18 through 20. He basically says, this is not easy, but know that when you do this, verse 18, you're doing this with my authority. Verse 19, I stand ready to help you with anything you need in this process. Verse 20, I will be with you in the midst of it. Verses 19 and 20 are actually two of the most abused verses in the Bible. Verse 19, Jesus says, if two of you agree on anything on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. That obviously doesn't mean just find somebody else who agrees with you on something and poof, God will give you whatever you want. And we don't find two or three other people who want the caps to win the Stanley Cup, claim Matthew 18 and think it's going to happen. Which, by the way, I have never watched hockey in my life until two weeks ago, and now I've totally got the fever. So anyway, it's so, it's so intense. When, it's so bad. Like, that's the only time clapping will ever be heard in this sermon. We're uh, talking about the caps. But uh, all right. So uh, anyway, I digress. You, you can't claim Matthew 18, 19 for a Stanley Cup title. So you got to remember the context here. Jesus has just finished talking about this process of restorative discipline. Jesus is saying, know this. Like when, when two or three are doing this in unison, confronting sin in the church, no, I will give you all the wisdom, all the strength, all the grace you need. And then verse 20, for where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them, may be one of the most abused verses in the Bible. How many times have you heard someone say, well, where two or three are gathered, Jesus is there. So we've got more than two or three, so we can know Jesus is here. Don't say that. Well, what about when somebody was in their prayer closet alone that morning? Does that mean Jesus was waiting for somebody else to show up before he came into the picture? <laughs> Just a trivia question, how many people does it take for Jesus to show up at a prayer meeting? One. How about one? Jesus is not saying, once you got two or three together, count me in. Like, no, so don't say that. And remember the context here. Jesus is saying, when you're carrying this process out with two or three people, confronting a brother or sister in sin, be assured you will experience my presence in a unique and powerful way. Like, I'm with you to do this. Because this is tough to do. And let's be honest, this is tough to even understand like church exclusion like the church kicks someone out I thought the church is a place where everyone is welcome so to say no you cannot be a member of this church that seems to go against the grain of everything we think doesn't it but this is what Jesus is saying. And this is what the New Testament church did. Go with me to one other place. Turn to one other place. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. So take a right. You'll go past Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. You'll get to Acts and Romans and 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. While you're turning there, let me give you a quick setup here. We talked about this passage a few weeks ago when we were talking about church membership. The city of Corinth was a city known for loose living, sexual immorality, a culture, unfortunately, very similar to ours. And just as it has in our day, that immorality had infiltrated the church. And Paul, in 1 Corinthians 5, addresses it 
in a forceful way in this letter to the church at Corinth with particular reference to one individual in the church at Corinth who was, there's no way around this, just committing immorality with his stepmother. I want you to hear what the Bible says. Listen to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife. And you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven. You may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world, or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. Since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. What a passage. Did you notice four times Paul says in pretty forceful language to remove this man. Verse 2, let him be removed from among you. Verse 5, deliver this man to Satan, which we'll talk about. Verse 7, cleanse out the old leaven. Verse 13, purge the evil person from among you. This was the day when Paul pretty much ruled himself out of being on the front cover of any church growth magazines. Because... He was doing what the Bible said in the church, what Jesus had instructed the church to do. So why? Why would a church ever confront an individual in in sin and remove him or her from the church? So we've seen the, the how of restorative church discipline, but why? And I want to show you here at least three reasons why. Why why do this? Why exclude someone from the church? First, for the purity of the church. The purity of the church is a huge part of what is being prioritized here. Did you notice how Paul never actually addresses the brother who had committed, or not had committed, was committing sexual immorality? The whole point is he's continuing, not he's done something in the past. He is living unrepentant in sexual immorality. But Paul never addresses him. Instead, Paul addresses the church because they are standing by and doing nothing about this brother caught in sin. And don't miss this. God is holding the church accountable for that. God is holding the church accountable for unrepentant sin in its members. Did you hear that statement? Like McLean Bible Church God is telling us right now that he holds 
us accountable, like all of us together in the church, we are accountable to God when we leave unrepentant sin in the church unaddressed. It's not the word of David. This is the word of God. And we do not think like this. We think about sin individualistically. That's that person's problem. It's their business when it's not true. This is our issue. We belong to one another. And one person's unrepentant sin is all of our concern. And if that person continues unrepentant in sin, it doesn't just affect him or her. It affects all of us before God. That's the whole point of the imagery here of the leaven bread. Like brothers and sisters in Christ, we are accountable to God for one another. Do you realize this? Do you realize right where you're sitting right now, here at other campuses, like right where you're sitting, that you are accountable before God for the growth and holiness of the brothers and sisters in Christ sitting around you. And if they continue unrepentant in sin, you are responsible before God. Have you you ever thought about church like that? I'm guessing many of us never, never thought about church like that. And we've got to hear verse 2. Should you have been filled with grief? The word here implies sorrow over the sins of others, confessing those sins as if they were our own. One writer I read said, a church that does not mourn over sin, especially sin within its own fellowship, is on the edge of spiritual disaster. And don't miss what was at the root of all of this in verse 2. Pride. Verse 2, and you are arrogant. Huh, don't, don't miss this. Again, this is so different than the way we think. It's, it's not necessarily that the church in Corinth was applauding sexual immorality in this brother. It's that they were ignoring it. They were open-minded, so to speak. Probably looked at themselves as welcoming. Doesn't matter what you do, you can be a member of this church. And we actually think that sounds kind and humble. When the Bible calls that kind of thinking evil and arrogant. Mark it down. If when we do restorative discipline as a church, on rare occasions, when someone continues with unrepentant sin, again, this isn't just talking about somebody battling with sin. That's the reality in all of our lives. It's talking about someone who continues unrepentant in sin, even when the whole church is saying, come back to Christ, and they still won't repent, and we as a church remove that person, mark it down, people will say that is prideful. If that church was humble and gracious, they would welcome them as members of the church when God is saying the exact opposite. God says it is pride to ignore unrepentant sin like it's no big deal. You are arrogant. It's the height of arrogance before God and it is hatred for that person. It is not loving 
for the church to leave a person alone in sin. Which leads to the next reason we do this, for the purity of the church and for the salvation of the individual. So fathers, we mentioned this earlier, to remove someone from the church is basically to say, this person does not give evidence of being a follower of Christ. That's why the language in verse five here is what it is. You're to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Now, there's a variety of debate, particularly the first part of that verse. What does it mean to hand him over to Satan? What does it mean for his flesh to be destroyed? Quite frankly, we don't have time to dive into all those issues today, but the point is, I'm convinced regardless of the nuances with different words and phrases, the point's clear. You look at that second part, the church is to do all of this so that this man's spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord, which is another, uh, for, another way of saying the day of judgment. So the church is to do this for this person's eternal good. Bible says the same thing in 1 Timothy 1, 19 and 20, talking about two men, Hymenaeus and Alexander, who the church had handed over to Satan that they may learn not to blaspheme. You put all this together. If someone is walking unrepentant in sin, again, not just battling with sin like we all do, but deliberately doesn't want to repent, doesn't want to follow Christ according to his word, then what else are we to conclude but that they are not a follower of Christ? We, we, we say, if you're not repenting and following Christ, then quite simply, we don't call you a follower of Christ, a part or a member of the church. Instead, we address you as outside the church. And we urge you to follow Christ. Now, the problem is, praying through this this morning, even just hit me in a fresh way, like we live in a church culture today where someone's excluded from one church, they think, no big deal. I'll just find another church. Or I'll continue unrepentant and sin away from God in that church. We live in a very sin-sick church culture where we just can hop around from one church to the next in disobedience to God in our lives. And a culture where even Christians think it's not that big a deal to be a part of a church. Like it was clearly a big deal in 1 Corinthians 5 to no longer be a part of the church. We live in a culture today where it's like even Christians are like, I don't know, it doesn't matter to me if I'm part of a church. We are so far from God's design. This must change. And we must do all we can as a church, not just to go along with the church culture around us, but to be the church God's called us to be in his word. Amen. We're just playing games here. And the hope here is, so follow this, the hope is that in someone being removed from the church, cast into the world in that sense, that a person will see the seriousness of their sin, they'll see that they're away from God, and they'll repent. If they don't ever repent, then much like we see in 1 John, which Lord willing we'll study together in the fall, it'll become clear they went out from the church because they were never actually of the church. If they do repent, 
then we would absolutely welcome them back as a part of a member of the church again. Paul actually talks about a situation like that in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 5 and 8, 5 through 8, when he encourages this same church at Corinth to restore someone who at one point had been excluded from fellowship but now repented of their sin. That's the game. Remember, this is restorative church discipline. It's for their restoration, which Jesus makes possible. That's the whole picture in 1 Corinthians 5 of Christ as the Passover lamb being sacrificed for sin. This is the gospel. And it's the message we proclaim to anyone outside the church. So please hear this. Particularly if you're not a follower of Christ, you're here today, please hear that you are welcome to attend this church. We want you to be here. We want you to to explore the claims of Christ and the truths of Christianity. We want you to see the love of Christ here. The difference is we're not going to call you a member of the church if you're not a follower of Christ, but I don't think you would expect to be called a member of the church if you're not a follower of Christ. Instead, we're going to encourage you. We're going to urge you even to follow Christ, to repent of sin. This is what we believe is the most loving message we can communicate to anyone who is away from God. Repent of sin. We want to say like week in and week out, Your sin is separating you from God. And if you die in your sin, you will be separated from God forever. But God has made a way for you to be forgiven of all your sin. Jesus has died on the cross for your sin. He's sacrificed his life as a substitute for your sin. He's risen from the dead in victory over sin. And anyone who turns from their sin and trusts in him as Savior and Lord will be forgiven of all your sin. At the moment of faith, forgiven of all your sin, reconciled to God, and restored to entirely new life with him. Amen. This is the gospel. So we urge you to repent and believe in Jesus. That's the message of the gospel for anyone, anyone who is away from God. And someone who's excluded from the church, that's the message we're saying in love just over and over and over again. Which leads to the third reason why we do this. Just for the purity of the church, for the salvation of the individual, and ultimately for the glory of God. And Paul starts this whole passage and he says, not even the world, not even pagans, he says, would condone what you're condoning in the church. And uh, as I was praying through this, this is, I don't believe just an epidemic problem in the church in Corinth 2,000 years ago. I think it's an epidemic problem in the church today. The news right now is filled with headlines of accusations and situations of all kinds of immorality in the church and leaders of the church and leaders supported by the church. And the world is, seems to be saying, we, we don't get it. And we, we expect the church to be different. We expect the church to treat sin seriously, not to act like it's not a big deal. Why is the church led in this way? Why does the church support leaders in this way? We are today a part of a church culture that is tolerating what even the world won't tolerate. And it is affecting what the world thinks about our God. Just to bring this home as to why this is really important to me. Well, it doesn't matter if it's important to me, it's important to Jesus, but 
I remember when I uh, first had the privilege of pastoring a church and not long after I started, the church was growing fast and just exciting. I was getting caught up in more and more people coming. The elders and I, that church were contacted by a woman in our community. Her husband had committed adultery in their marriage with another woman. That husband had left his wife and was living with this other woman. And he started coming to the church I was pastoring and he joined the church. This woman said, there, there's a member of your church who's living with another woman while he's in the process of divorcing me. I, I don't understand how you're okay with that. And it pierced me. Because <laughs> I realized I, and how sinful is this, had gotten so caught up in the excitement of seeing more people that I was not focused on the holiness of those people who were coming. And I realized, as a pastor, that I will not be judged before God based on the number of people who come and listen to me preach. Instead, I will be judged by God for the holiness of the church I pastor. Not any church, so not any church will be perfect this side of heaven, but God has called his church to lovingly pursue holiness and one another's lives for his glory. This is not an option for us. I, I want, I trust you want God to be glorified all across Washington, D.C. through McLean Bible Church. This, the church is designed by God to be a display of his character to the world. And this is serious. So brothers and sisters, we will not display his character to the world it will not display his glory to the world. It will not happen when we get a certain number of people coming. We must realize that is not our measure of success as a church. Let me say it again. The number of people who sit in a seat is not the measure of our success. The measure of our success is whether or not the people in those seats are looking more and more and more like Jesus. Amen. <laughs> That is what we are accountable for before God. So God help us to realize that loving one another in the church involves humbly sharing responsibility for one another's holiness in our lives. Let's, let's pray. Oh God, this is a uh, heavy word. This is a hard word to understand. We just confess it goes so against the grain of the way we think on our own. So we pray. Oh God, I've prayed all morning. Just transform 
our minds by the power of your spirit through your word. Help us to think differently, to live differently. God, we want to be the church you've designed us to be. We, we believe this is for our good. So we say we trust you. We trust you more than we trust ourselves. We trust you more than we trust our own ideas, our own thoughts, our own opinions, our own traditions. We trust your word. God, I pray, I pray for a pray for men, women, students today here in this room and other campuses right now who are living in unrepentant sin. God, I pray that in this holy moment, this would just be a wake-up call for many to turn from sin. By your grace, God, thank you for your love. Thank you that you've not left any one of us alone in our sin, that even right now you're running after people in their sin. You're calling them back to yourself, God. Make it happen, we pray, in hearts all across this room and other campuses. Please draw people who've, who've jumped off the cliff, who are stepping over the cliff, who are stepping toward the cliff. God, please draw them back today by your grace and your mercy, we pray. Please draw people to trust in Christ today to be forgiven of their sin, reconciled to you today. God, we pray for that. Save people from eternity separated from you. Do that even right now, I pray. Cause people to put their faith in you. And then as we do, God, help us to do this work in one another's lives. Help us to love one another like this. Help us to put this into practice. Help us to obey your word for the display of your glory as McLean Bible Church. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thanks for joining us today on Radical with David Platt. If you'd like to watch this full sermon or hundreds of other sermons, interviews, articles, and podcasts, that's all available free to you at Radical.net. And if you haven't already, we encourage you to check out our daily podcast called Pray the Word. It's short daily meditations on God's Word that not only drive us to pray, but also shape how we pray. David Platt takes a verse or two every day, seven days a week, helps us understand and the truths found in those verses and leads us to pray according to those verses. We are nearing our 300th episode of Pray the Word and David has already covered books like Acts, Proverbs, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, Matthew, Isaiah, Revelation, and Romans. So I'd encourage you to search for Pray the Word in your podcast player of choice or you can visit radical.net forward slash pray the word. I'm your host, Thomas Bowen, and until next time, join us there at radical.net.